Hello, welcome to the Dear Nikki podcast, where I'm going to be giving you personalized user research advice based on your questions or struggles. So let's dive into today's episode. Hello, hello, everybody. I am excited to be here, but I must admit that this is not the first go around that I've had of recording this particular episode, but hopefully it will be the last. (laughs) I have tried to record this episode a few times now, and the first time that I tried to record it, I was super excited about the topic, and it was actually a topic that I thought of without being asked about it, and I tried to record it while I was on a walk with my dog, Poncho. And the audio was just absolute crap. You couldn't hear me. I I mean, I live on an island with a lot of wind. I don't know what I was thinking. I thought for some reason if I put in my headphones and hoped for the best and maybe walked some of the back lanes, you could hear me fine. But yeah, the audio was absolutely terrible. So I scrapped the idea for a while. And now I got recently this request for, for this particular episode. And I was super excited. I was about you know, 10 minutes into the episode, so a third of the way there, and my calendar notification went off despite me having Do Not Disturb on. This is a constant battle. I'm telling you, it is a constant battle. Any sort of noise is a constant battle for a podcaster, I feel like. And it's such an anxiety kind of anxious, at least I feel like anxiety provoking situation where I turn off all my notifications. I do not disturb things. I do all of the things that I'm supposed to do, but somewhere there's some window on my computer on something that goes off during my podcast episodes. Either that or Poncho starts barking, which he's in the room with us right now. So let's hope for the best so that this is the last time that I record this episode. Anyways, The topic for today I am very, very excited by, and I'm going to tell you about it right now. So I had somebody write in saying, you have mentioned a number of times about the common mistakes self-taught experienced people make within user research in various episodes. I was hoping you could double click on that in an upcoming episode and just focus on that topic. Yeehaw. I am excited. (laughs) I didn't use yeehaw in my last recording, so that's a gem. Anyways, I love talking about the mistakes that I made and I the the things that I will share today are definitely mistakes that I've seen in the field. They're not just mistakes that I have made. There are mistakes that I've seen with my students, just with colleagues, with people within my membership. There are plenty of people who have also been through these mistakes, but I like calling myself on my own stuff. So, and that's where I feel more comfortable. So I'm going to primarily talk about them as mistakes I've made as a user researcher. So also I can give some concrete examples, but they are mistakes that have been made in the field in general. So I went through and I made a quick list because I would have just forgotten them. And we have 10. I don't know if we're going to get through all 10, but we're going to try. And if we don't get through all 10, I might make this a two-part episode because I do find it really important to talk about mistakes and what they mean and how we can maybe come together to understand we are not the only ones who are making mistakes, even if they seem common or obvious or something that we shouldn't be doing, right? So we should come together to understand that we all make these mistakes and we can move past them. So we're going to try and get through as many as possible in the next 
30 minutes and uh, let's just see where that takes us. I'm really, really excited to talk about this particular subject. I just love talking about mistakes. I think that they are so important. They are, they are how we learn. So mistakes are not bad, right? Even really bad ones that I've made. <laughs> but mistakes are not bad inherently. So let's go through the first one. And this first one might be seen as more of a personality trait, but I still think that it can show up, especially for self-taught user researchers. So the first mistake that I've made as a, as a user researcher is a level of perfectionism with my work. So especially because I was the first user researcher at a company, the only user researcher at this company, and I was self-taught, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified of sharing any sort of outcome, anything that I created, any sort of deliverable with people before I thought that it was absolutely perfect, right? So I had this level of perfectionism that came to my work that is actually what we tell product and tech, so like our colleagues not to do. We're like MVP, you know? put it in front of users and get it ripped apart. Yay, this is great, right? I did not take any of that advice for my own work and I really, really should have. So what happened was I was creating deliverables or reports or, you know, personas. I remember, oh, the first set of personas that I ever created, I mean, they weren't good. <laughs> they weren't going to be good, honestly. They were my first set of personas. They weren't going to be good. But this first set of personas, Oh, it took me such a long time. It was like painstaking. And I I didn't share it with anybody until the last possible moment on the deadline when I was presenting them. Didn't Nobody got a heads up. Nobody got to give any feedback. And people had a lot of feedback. And they had a lot of questions. And they were concerned that some of the information wasn't actually that helpful. Did I have other information? And I was furious. <laughs> to say the least. Of course, eventually I turned that onto myself, which was quite negative at the time. But I was so angry and I was so frustrated because I had just spent such a long time on these personas only for people to kind of call them useless in a very nice way, right? Which they were. So I just didn't want to face that fact at that time. And so what happened with me was that my perfectionism and my fear of showing people that I was either self-taught or I didn't know all the answers to everything made me not share things with people early and often. And what that could what that resulted in was a lot of problems with my deliverables or with my outcomes where they didn't address or include information that people actually needed and they didn't address the problems that people wanted to solve, right? And so and this leads actually very well into my second mistake was not seeking that feedback. So that perfectionistic attitude led me to just like not sharing anything and including with my manager until the last possible second and also making myself sick, trying to make something so perfect. Also keep in mind that personas are meant to be dynamic. Any, most deliverables are meant to be dynamic, so they're meant to change. And so I made myself sick trying to make this perfect thing that was ultimately going to change, right? And so leading into that second one was that I didn't seek feedback at all. And so what happened with not seeking feedback is that I was 
I had no idea how to improve. You know, people would ask me questions if I shared something with them and I would say, oh yeah, sure, I'll get back to that or maybe I'll add that in later. And so, but I wasn't seeking proactive feedback, which meant that the things that I shared kind of hit, didn't hit the mark. And then what would happen is people would see research as less valuable and then they would see me as more closed off and not as open to like receiving constructive feedback right? And those two things in tandem were horrible for user research at an organization, right? So I didn't I didn't look for people to give me feedback. I didn't ask for it. And so people didn't give it naturally. And so I didn't know if something was working or not. I got mad when people weren't using my reports, but I didn't try and understand why they weren't using them, right? I just kind of said, well, people don't appreciate me, right? Rather than trying to understand how I could help them better and how I could use them to get me that feedback. And so again, that was pretty detrimental to my career as a researcher because it meant that people stopped coming to me as much because they didn't see the value in user research, especially when I was creating something that didn't really help them, right? And I wasn't asking for any feedback. And then that also led to me being stagnant in my career because I was looking around saying, okay, what what am I supposed to improve in? Nobody's telling me where I should improve and whatnot. And I had a lot of like team of ones, only researcher, not having a research manager. I had a lot of those instances. And so I wasn't looking for feedback from anybody else as well. So I was kind of just stuck. So all of those mechanisms where I did not ask for feedback really, that was one of the worst times in my career because I was just so stuck and I had no idea how to improve. I had no idea why people weren't listening to me. I had no idea why research wasn't being valued. I was frustrated. I was upset. This was around the time in my career where I almost quit. Right. And so what happened is I, I finally switched to this mentality of asking for feedback. And that changed everything because then I was able to share things more openly with people. Right. And get that feedback and not be as scared of it. So I got used to it. And then my outcomes and deliverables were much more impactful and effective because they actually address things that people need because I got that feedback earlier. Right. And then I wasn't so frustrated. And then when I asked for feedback in general as well, I was able to highlight areas that I could improve upon, such as in like processes, right? So that was very helpful in springing me forward in my career. And I will say, I didn't take everybody's feedback. I took some with a grain of salt because not everybody can give good feedback, but still I was open to listening to people's feedback and then I could identify what what trends there were in feedback and what was the best feedback to listen to. And kind of similarly to both of the perfectionism and the not seeking feedback, something that I did before was doing research without stakeholders. <laughs> and I know this sounds really weird, but I totally did this. I am very guilty. So I would conduct research without stakeholders. And that was even like from the get-go, you know, I would just be like, okay, we're going to do research on this. And I would kind of just pick something or I just like would not have them in the process with me because I was thinking that they were too busy or they didn't want to be involved or they shouldn't be involved. I had a lot of weird 
connotations and biases and thoughts and opinions that were not well formed because I was self-taught. You know, so I would read articles on how stakeholders should not come to interviews because it's too much for users. Or I would read articles where people said that you're supposed to do research alone, right? And so because of that self-taught nature, I would take in those opinions as my own, right? And people were like, oh, stakeholders don't care about research. And so I then said the same. And so what happened is I would conduct research without stakeholders. Obviously, we all know where this ends up, dying somewhere in a Google Drive when it's done, right? So when we don't involve stakeholders in our research, we're essentially doing the same thing as not involving research and product or users in product development, right? Because our stakeholders have so much knowledge and so much context that we might not have, whether that be about the business, the team, analytics, the product, whatever it might be, our stakeholders can give us so much information, right? They can help us focus our research. They can help us ensure that the research we are doing is helpful for them, right? So when we come together to form a research study with stakeholders, those are usually the most impactful and most successful studies, right? Even if they're a bit hard in the beginning, they are super, generally super impactful because we've come together, we've aligned on a problem space, we've talked through everybody's expectations, the outcomes that we need, the information that we need, what we're trying to achieve with this study. We've all aligned on that. We all have a shared understanding of exactly what the end of the research project is going to look like. The researcher can go out Obviously, stakeholders should be involved in that as much as humanly possible, right? So they should come to interviews or sit into interviews or usability tests or what, whatever it is, watch the recordings, be part of the debriefs, be part of the synthesis sessions, right? Be part of the ideation. Without, if we take stakeholders away completely, and I know I've worked on plenty of projects where my stakeholders have not been available for various reasons, such as they didn't want to be or they couldn't be, right? And I have had to do research in the in a vacuum, but at least I started with stakeholders. I always do my best to make sure that they're part of the planning process if they can't come along with me during the entire project. But if they are, and if you're able to engage your stakeholders throughout that entire process, they just have such a deeper understanding of the users and of the project. And it makes it a lot easier for them to take the information that you gathered, whether that be insights or findings, whatever that is, and turn it into something that is actionable because they've seen the user using something during a usability test, or they've heard the user talk about a struggle that they had during an interview, right? Or they saw and watched the patterns come through during a synthesis session. And everybody is aligned on all of this information. And at the end, we're creating something that is personalized for our stakeholders, right? And that's what we need to do. And so I would, again, liken doing research without stakeholders is the same as doing product development without users, right? You don't have your key people there that you're trying to understand and that you're trying to create projects around. And I will say that there is also a space for proactive research. So 
reactive research to me is when somebody comes to you with a request, right? A stakeholder comes to you with a request, you react to that request doing research, right? Proactive research is when you think as a researcher, hey, I think that this is an area that needs research, right? But very rarely do we do proactive research without first engaging our stakeholders to understand the areas in which they have questions or the areas that have knowledge gaps, right? So whenever we do proactive research or where, whenever I have done proactive research in the past, I usually hold a workshop on question gathering where I gather stakeholders' questions and start to see the patterns in them and see if there's any strategic research that I can do that helps multiple teams and answers pretty big questions, right? So even when we are being proactive with our research, our stakeholders are still involved in that process because ultimately we're trying to help them, right? We are a support system for our stakeholders. So it is important to put them at the center of our studies, right? Because they are the people that we need to help. Uh, so we need, we need that input from them in order to create effective studies. So that is another mistake that I have made and also seen a lot. And again, just even if your stakeholders don't care, they don't want to engage with you at all. They don't want to be a part of the process. They don't want to come to research. They don't want to come to the synthesis sessions as much as you can right? Try to get them as part of the planning so that you can at least understand the information that they need, right? What I will do is something that's also important in this whole like getting stakeholders as part of the research process is the mindset behind treating stakeholders like users. So I am going to link to my ebook and I feel so fancy saying that is my ebook. <laughs> I'm going to link to my ebook all about how to treat your stakeholders like users and get them a little bit more engaged in your research process. So check out that ebook. It's I don't know, 15, 20 pages long, and it has a lot of really great information on how to engage with your stakeholders more. The next mistake that I made was not using research goals, right? So that kind of meant that my research didn't have a focus, right? And I didn't really understand when I was beginning my career, but I would also say for a while that I needed concrete research goals, right? And it wasn't because I didn't necessarily learn that, but it was often because either I wasn't sure how to define them because I wasn't including stakeholders, or I was trying to do too much within a research study. And so I had about 50 million goals, right? And so when you have 50 million goals, you don't really have a goal for your research. You just have a blob <laughs> of a study. So what... I tried to do was answer too many research questions or just give such a general and this this was also something that I did with proactive research for a while as I just went so general where I was like we're just going to talk to users right and my because we just need to understand them and because I didn't I lacked goals what happened is like I almost had a different conversation with every single person I spoke to which does not make for any sort of fun synthesis. 
or rapport building. In fact, it makes for a very terrible time and a lot of questioning on if you are a good researcher or not. So that's something that I identified with hugely. That was another part in my career where I almost quit. <laughs> I should do I should do a podcast episode on that. All the times in my career where I almost quit as a user researcher. But so by not using research goals, my my studies would often lack focus and that was absolutely detrimental because that means that I did not align with anybody on what was also needed, right? So if I didn't have research goals, that meant that I certainly didn't talk to my stakeholders about what their goals were, which meant that maybe I had some things in mind that I was interested in, right? But because those weren't apparent, because those weren't explicit, I could not have come to a shared understanding with any of my stakeholders about this, which then means that I probably wasn't getting information that was helpful to anybody, right? So research goals, while they do help with focus and consistency, right? We don't want to be asking participants different questions and covering different topics within the same study, right? We, we want consistency throughout our research sessions. So where it does help with focus, it also helps with getting that shared understanding with your stakeholders, putting that stuff out there like, hey, everyone, these are the goals that we have. Do these make sense? Let's tweak them together. Let's come to that shared understanding so that we can get the right information out of the study. So it allows us that focus and also allows us to get the right information that everybody needs. And so without those research goals, my sessions were all over the place. I didn't have a lot of consistency. I struggled so much with analysis because every conversation was different. I mean, they were all fascinating, but they were different, right? And then the information that I was getting wasn't necessarily aligned with or helpful at that level for stakeholders. So again, research just looks like a waste of time. Can't believe I said that out loud, <laughs> but it does, honestly. And so that was hugely detrimental to my career. And it's also a mistake that I still see, right? So sometimes we can get really wrapped up in, in a request or in something that we feel like we should be doing and we skip right to, or a stakeholder comes to us with a request and it's skipping right to like usability testing or card sorting or this or that or the other thing, right? And instead of, and this is something that I am very guilty of, instead of really taking a step back and saying, okay, what are the goals? What are we trying to achieve? You know, I just kind of went with it because again, it's very exciting to get requests, right? And some requests might seem really obvious. So we don't feel like we need to write goals down, but it's always helpful because again, we have that opportunity to create that shared understanding with stakeholders to make sure that we're getting that right information and not just assuming that everybody wants whatever information we think, right? And then we're also reinforcing focus for ourselves. And then we are at 23 minutes, which is just unbelievable. So we're just going to talk about one more, and then I will do a part two for the next five of the, of the mistakes. So the last mistake that I've made for this particular part as a user researcher is not thinking about recruitment criteria and screening sur screener surveys. So trying to research everyone right? Sending out a survey to everyone, sending out a study to everyone, recruiting everyone for interviews or everybody for usability tests. And this is born of that not having research goals. So if we don't have research goals and we don't have focus for our research, 
then what happens is like, how are we supposed to know who we're meant to talk to, <laughs> right? So research goals can help us with thinking about that re recruitment criteria, right? So, and this is actually a mistake that I made as a straight up as a senior user researcher. So I was lax with my recruitment criteria for a lot of time. And I think that that was because I worked in the B2B space. And so it was just very natural that I would find people within my niches that I wanted to talk to. So when I moved into B the B2C space, like my recruitment criteria and like screener survey skills were not honestly the best. And as I said, I was very lax with them. And so what happened several times is I would recruit for studies and get the wrong people because I would ask the wrong questions for the screener survey, or I wouldn't really think about asking questions on a screener survey. One of the most common examples that I give people is when I was working at a travel company, I was trying to understand how people plan travel. So it wasn't necessarily like the purchase or, you know, necessarily the inspirational phase, but rather when they got right down to it, how did they plan? What was their step-by-step -step process that they went through when they were planning? And what happened is I was kind of crap at recruitment and screener surveys. And so I had just asked people if they had traveled recently, like in the past six months or so. And people had said yes. And I was like, great, come on in, let's chat. But it just so happened that the people, some of the people that I recruited didn't plan that their trip. They had traveled, but their wonderful significant other, friend, family member, whomever it was, partner, had been the one that planned the trip. So there were a lot of crappy conversations and a lot of time wasted that uh, was very, very embarrassing for me. And then the deadline had to get pushed because I had to re-recruit people. So really thinking about recruitment criteria and exactly who you want to be talking to is so super important. And I would say that this is also when it comes to recruitment or who you want to talk to. So your representative sample. This is also very important when you come to thinking about survey sample sizes. So your survey sample size should not necessarily be your entire population, right? Or the entire audience or your entire, you know, uh, traffic to your website. You should try and look into your representative sample because that will give you a much more accurate sample size for your survey, right? So looking for recruitment criteria or you can call it that, or just like who should be, who you should be talking to, whether that be in a one-on-one -on -one interview, usability test, survey, tree test, whatever it might be, is so super important because if you don't think about this, you might not get the right information. And again, there were times where my recruitment was very, very lax and I was very, very lucky for a good deal of my career when I was in B2B. <laughs> I had really great colleagues. But when I moved into that other space, it was so lax and I really didn't think about it. So even if you're if you're assuming that your recruitment criteria is going to be fine or you're assuming that you know who your representative sample is, always just try and think about it and make sure that you're very intentional about who you're going to talk to. So that is it for today's episode. Those were the first five mistakes I've made as a user researcher and that I've also seen happen a lot in the field. So for next week, we're going to dive into the second part, <laughs> it's a surprise second part of this 
particular topic where I will go through uh, five more mistakes that I've made as a user researcher and also that I've seen within the field. So I am excited to dive back in next week and I'll see you then. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe and submit your next question. And I look forward to talking to you all soon. Bye. Thank you.